dramatically from the day before. I was anxious. I was disappointed. I was frustrated. And now stay with me, okay? This isn't about how any of us voted, but it's about how do we feel, how do we respond when things don't turn out the way we think they should or the way we hope they will, will, okay? So on Tuesday, I had been thinking, we're going to be able to relax these next two years. The moral slide we've been on will be temporarily halted. Things will be back to more what I perceive as normal. On Wednesday morning, oh my goodness, we're going to have to face more difficult challenges and battles these next years. I'm really going to need to trust the Lord more. Is that revealing anything in my heart there? Here's another scenario. Almost all of us at one time or another have looked at our bank accounts and it's only $32 or maybe $0.32. We're praying, we're trusting the Lord, we're quoting Psalm 23, we're thinking, how's the Lord going to meet these needs? And, but as time goes on, at least for some of us, our bank account moves out of the pennies or double digits into triple digits, maybe quadruple digits, maybe six digits, and we start to relax. We're not quite as prayerful, we're not as anxious, Psalm 23 gets a little bit rusty, and Carol's and Maya case, um, our bank account isn't six digits, but our money is certainly freer now than it has been in years past. And, you know, it's not the concern it used to be. You know, hey, we can relax. Life is good. Do you see anything going on in my heart there? In both scenarios, in the mornings before and after the election, and in the digits in my bank accounts, Big things are being revealed about where my trust is, what I'm relying on. Isn't that true? When my heart is less anxious because I have $3,000 or $30,000 in the bank than when I have just thirty-two, isn't that an unmistakable sign that I trust my measly bank account more than I trust the omnipotent God of the universe? who happens to be my heavenly father and happens to own the cattle on a thousand hills. And who just happens to promise to meet all my needs. Today we're going to talk about misplaced reliance, misplaced trust. And we're going to go back to King Jehoshaphat, or as a couple of my high school friends corrected me last time, Jehoshaphat. It probably is Jehoshaphat. But I've been saying Jehoshaphat for 50 years. It's probably not going to change, okay? So whichever one you call him, going back to Jehoshaphat in 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Chronicles, not Corinthians, 2 Chronicles, uh, today in chapter 18 and 19, and talking about the, the, this, this theme of misplaced trust runs through the books of Chronicles. <clears throat> Numerous illustrations, some positive, some negative. But the question is, in what do you and I put our trust? Who, when we face life's challenges, in what do we place our confidence? Whose power and resources do we find ourselves turning to and relying on to produce the outcomes that we desire or we think we need? And so a couple weeks ago, we looked at, at chapter 17 in Second Chronicles, and Jehoshaphat is a godly, godly man, and just talked about him Seeking the Lord. His heart for the Lord was very evident in that chapter. 
We come to chapter 18, and here's a negative example from his life of misplaced trust. And Lord willing, in a few weeks, we'll look at chapter 20, which is a wonderful, positive example of trusting in the Lord in a very difficult situation. But today is this negative example. And so we're going to spend about 20 minutes to walk through chapter 18, this fascinating story, and then 10 or 15 minutes at the end just thinking about some application points. So if you, if you haven't yet, open your Bibles to Second Chronicles 18 and 19. And let's pray. Father, would you help us here? Would you just help us to see in our lives how easily we shift into misplaced reliance? Or sometimes it's self-reliance, sometimes it's other things that, Lord, will, will not hold us up. Would you help us to see that so we can turn, we can repent, turn back and trust entirely in you in the middle of life's daily needs. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 Chronicles 18, 19, here are, the, here are the six steps that this story goes through. Okay, the first is the road to self-deception and disaster. We could say the seeds of self-deception and disaster. Next step is living on yesterday's faith. Look at Jehoshaphat's feigned prayer for guidance. And then behind the curtain, going to see some of the spiritual realities going on behind this incident. Fourth step, the providential outcome, Jehoshaphat's unlikely deliverance and Ahab's unlucky death. Fifth, God's rebuke. And then sixth, just the encouragement, failure need never be final. So look at, in chapter 18 of Second Chronicles, read verses 1 through 3 with me. The seeds of self-deception and disaster. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. After some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria, and Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people who were with him, and induced him to go against Ramoth Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me to Ramoth Gilead? He answered, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in the war. Now the main clause in verse 1, the main point of verse 1 is about the marriage alliance, right? The second part of the verse says, Jehoshaphat, he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. So why does it throw in that first phrase? Why does the writer start it off by saying, now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. He's already said that back in chapter 17, verse 5, almost the same words. He had great riches and honor. Why does he bring it back in here? I believe what he's doing, he's hinting a connection here. Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. And in chapter 17, he knew that these riches and honor were the blessing of the Lord because he was trusting in the Lord. He knew where they came from in chapter 17. But now, this is about 10 years later in, in, in his reign, and he has sort of forgotten where those riches and honor came from. And now he's thinking, hmm, I'm doing pretty well. Look at all these riches I have. They become a source of self-confidence and misplaced reliance for him. Jehoshaphat, you remember the, the, that the, he's in Judah, the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom, they have been at war for about 50 years since the kingdom was split under King Rehoboam. 
So the, the people of Judah constantly have to, have to keep their northern border secure to try to keep out the northern kingdom. His grandfather Abijah had to do that. The Lord gave Abijah a great victory. His father Asa, godly king again, but when it came to the northern kingdom trying to invade, Asa, instead of turning to the Lord, he called the king of Assyria and said, can you come help me against King Basha? And the Lord reprimanded King Asa severely for it. This is Jehoshaphat's father. Surely Jehoshaphat knew that story. And so he has built up his defenses, which is a good thing as his king. But up until this, this point, chapter 17 depicts him as trusting the Lord. He's built up his defenses, but he's trusting the Lord to protect them. But something has shifted here in chapter 18. Jehoshaphat's pretty impressed with himself. The economy's booming, foreign policy is working, the surrounding nations, they fear us. He says, I think it's time to take my assets, my success, my diplomatic expertise, and I'm going to head up to Samaria to King Ahab and work out an alliance with him. So I don't need to keep worrying about my northern border. Now, you all are acquainted some with King Ahab, aren't you? Ahab was probably the most wicked king of Israel, all the history of Israel. The Bible says he sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he married Jezebel, who has the reputation of probably the most wicked woman in the Old Testament. Jezebel had 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah that she fed at her own table. Just wickedness, idolatry. Ahab and Jezebel can't think of a worse couple. Bonnie and Clyde don't hold a candle to them, okay? So this is the Ahab that Jehoshaphat thinks, I can go and make an alliance with this guy. What is he thinking? Now the marriage alliance there in verse 1 actually wasn't his marriage, but he married his son Jehoram to Jahab and, and Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. And if you trace her story, a generation later, Athaliah is seeking to kill the entire royal family, destroy the royal family. She gets all of them but one little baby so that she can be queen. Just this wickedness. And Jehoshaphat marries into this. What what was he doing? What was he thinking? Well, that's all verse 1. We're going to speed up a little bit here, okay? So in verse 2, after some years, it's probably about 10 years later, in the 19th or 20th year, of, Ahab, of, of Jehoshaphat's 25-year reign, okay? When this, when this happened, if you tracing it out the chronology. So he's been king about 20 years. And he decides, I'm going to hop in my chariot, summon the presidential motor, motorcade, and head up to the northern capital of Samaria to visit my son's poppy-in-law, good old Ahab, and we're going to have a little Palestinian summit. Well, Ahab is very glad to see him coming because Ahab has some intentions that he needs Jehoshaphat's help for. So Ahab rolls out the red carpet. An abundance of sheep and oxen were slaughtered. All these, all these sacrifices. If you can try to imagine this huge shindig that Ahab is putting on for Jehoshaphat. And then it says in verse 2, and Ahab induced him. So there's some manipulation going on here to go with them against, fight against Ramoth Gilead. And remarkably, Jehoshaphat 
maybe wanted to impress Ahab. Right away he says, my people are as your people. We will go to battle with you. What was he thinking? Well, the seeds of deception and and disaster have sprouted in Jehoshaphat's heart. And this misplaced confidence, shifting his reliance from, Lord, all my wealth and my security is from you, to thinking, I've got this one, and I'm going to work some deals with Ahab because I can handle this. Second step in the story is living on yesterday's faith. In verse 4 now, right away after saying, we'll go with you, Jehoshaphat, let's read verses 4 through 22. Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, 400 men, they weren't prophets of the Lord, and said to them, shall we go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imla, but I hate him for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah the son of Imla. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah were sitting on the thrones arrayed in their, royal, in their robes, all this pomp and pageantry going on. And they were sitting at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead in triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Now let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? And he answered, go up and triumph. They'll be given into your hand. Pretty sure he was just being sarcastic there. And look at how Ahab responded, verse 15. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master, let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Back in verse 4, when when Jehoshaphat said, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Inquire is that same word to seek. After that runs about 40 times in Chronicles. And it reflects a heart, a posture toward the Lord of trusting him. But I'm not sure that that Jehoshaphat really wanted to know what the Lord had to say. And let's see if that plays out here as we look at some things. 
It's strange, isn't it? He has just said, my people are your people. I'll go to battle with you. Oh, but wait a minute. Let's inquire of the Lord first. Now, Jehoshaphat knows that those 400 prophets are lying, right? He, know, he knows. He says, isn't there somebody else? Isn't there a real prophet here? He knows they're lying. And when Micaiah comes and gives the message, the message is very clear, right? This is going to be a disaster. In fact, down in verse 22, verse 20, Therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you, Ahab. So it's very clear. Very, it's, it's, but does this change, as we go on in the story, does this change anything of what Jehoshaphat's going to do? He does not change his course of action one bit in spite of all this. Brothers and sisters, how, how could this be? How could a godly man act this way? I think all we have to do to answer that question is to look in the mirror. Because I've prayed prayers like that. You've prayed prayers like that. Lord, would you please give us guidance? And let the answer be yes. And it seems that Ahab and Jehoshaphat had already both made up their minds about what they were going to do. It didn't matter what the prophets said. Ahab's reaction tells us that he knew Micaiah wasn't being sincere when Micaiah said, yeah, go on up, you'll win. He knew Micaiah was just playing the game. And when Micaiah gave the true message, Ahab calls it bad or evil. Wouldn't you think that if the Lord gave, gave us a word, we had some plans that we were pretty excited about, and the Lord gave us a word and said, it's going to be disastrous. Wouldn't you think we'd be thankful for that? Oh, thank you, Lord. I'm going to avoid disaster by changing my plans. And yet how often are we frustrated instead and angry at the Lord for stopping us from negative consequences? When God's word keeps sounding like bad news, warning of consequences of the path we're on, maybe we should take a hint. God in his mercy may be sparing us from disaster just around the corner. I'm going to skip for sake of time here the, the ne next verses. And if, if you read it and have questions, just text me or, or send me. Because it, it is an interesting thing. This, the, the demons who came and were a lying spirit in the mouths of these prophets raises some, some interesting, challenging questions. Text me, I'll send you a PDF that has some helpful stuff on Grudem on it, okay? If you want. So go to verse 28, and now we're going to see the providential outcome, Jehoshaphat's unlikely deliverance and Ahab's unlucky death. Verse 28. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, get this, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your royal robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself, and they went into battle. Now the king of Assyria had commanded the captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. 
As soon as the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it's the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, no, no, it's not me. It's not me. It's him. He's over there. And the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. For as soon as the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random. And guess who he struck? He struck the king of Israel, Ahab, between the scale armor and the breastplate. That was a fantastic shot. Totally at random, though. Therefore, Ahab said to the driver's chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. The battle continued that day, and the king of Israel was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening. Then at sunset, he died. So Ahab and Jehoshaphat both knew that the 400 prophets were lying. They knew exactly what the Lord said would happen. Yet they both still went into battle, right? Why? Why didn't Jehoshaphat bail out of this suicidal, disastrous plan? On top of that, why, why does he agree to Ahab's crazy scheme? Hey, you wear your royal robes. I'm just going to put on private's out, private's uniform. I think the point is this. Ahab and Jehoshaphat, in particular Jehoshaphat, he had already made up his mind what he was going to do. It didn't matter what God or anyone else told him. God gave a clear message. didn't matter. And brothers and sisters, when you and I have our minds made up regardless, we are in dangerous waters. We're sitting ducks for the enemy to pick us off. We make ourselves vulnerable to any half-truth or lie which supports the decision we've made. We're no longer able to think with wisdom or discernment. And it may just be a decision. I want to marry this person. We ask God for his blessing, but we really don't care what God says, right? It may be something we're going to buy. We've decided. We ask for the Lord, but we we really don't care what he's going to say. It may be a perspective in the midst of a difficult trial I refuse to see God's love and goodness in the middle of this. I will not see it. Because we, we, somebody, we want to be bitter. Doesn't matter what God's word says. Sometimes it's a judgment on someone else. I will never forgive this person until they do this, 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 and this. Doesn't matter how God's treated me. Doesn't matter what God's word says. When we've made up our minds what we're going to do, regardless of what God or his word says, we are so susceptible to self-deception, aren't we? Even if overall we want to follow the Lord in our lives. Jehoshaphat was a godly man. Even when God's word is crystal clear, the, the message was not confusing from Micaiah, right? It was very clear. Even when we know the outcome is likely to be bad, Jehoshaphat knew this is going to be a disaster. Even when we're asked to do something really foolish, like we wear the king's clothes and he gets disguised. Things that we would tell a friend, are you kidding? Run, run, run. 
brothers and sisters, when we make up our mind what we're going to do regardless of what God says, you better have your insurance policy paid up. Because we cannot thwart God's purposes. And we see it work out here in the story. Ahab thinks, I'm, I'm, I'm going to outwit God. And a random arrow takes his life. Now Jehoshaphat, God was merciful and spared Jehoshaphat. But God, God doesn't always do that. He doesn't always rescue us from our outright disobedience and foolishness, does he? He wants us to learn from this. When, Joshua come, when Jehoshaphat comes home in chapter 19, it says, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. Made it back safe. Everything's good. Everything's fine. Well, verse 2, But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, the prophet, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, and this is, this is God's summation of Jehoshaphat's actions in this whole time. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? We don't want God saying that about things we, decisions we make, do we? Should you love the wicked? Help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Asheroth out of the land. And I've set your heart to seek God. And overall, Jehoshaphat is a godly man. And the next verses in the rest of chapter 19 are, are a wonderful expression of one, the hope of repentance and return. This theme is throughout Chronicles. Failure need never be final. Because God in his mercy always gives us the opportunity to repent and return. So let's take 10 minutes here at the end just to think about some application points. I think the vast majority of us here, we, we want to trust the Lord, don't we? We want to walk closely with him. We don't want to be making foolish stuff that leads to disaster. And even though we are always so frequently slip into self-confidence and misplaced reliance, we know that that's not a good place to be and we don't want to keep repeating that pattern. So when the Lord shows us things in our hearts and we realize, man, my confidence, my trust is totally misplaced. God isn't slapping us around and sending us to our bedroom because we're bad kids. No, he's, he's it's an invitation for him to turn from those things and trust him and return and take our trust off of those things that are totally unreliable. Put it back to him. So here's a couple of things to think about. Number one, the precariousness of success and the danger of pride and misplaced reliance. When we experience success in our lives, whether it's in sports or business or finances, parenting, relationships, popularity, it's a great blessing, isn't it? But with success and accomplishment, there's always a built-in trap or snare or danger built into it. Pride is one of the biggest ones. And we so easily get an exaggerated self-importance and overestimation of our own abilities. We lose sight of the fact that while we definitely worked hard for that thing to be accomplished, 
Ultimately, all of our successes are due to God's providence and his intervention in the affairs of life. Yes, we worked hard. But if God doesn't direct and oversee all these things, we're not successful, brothers and sisters, in anything. Just like Jehoshaphat, everyone in this room is susceptible to that kind of pride, aren't we? In chapter 17, Jehoshaphat, he knew that his great riches and honor from the Lord. And his trust was in the Lord. But something has shifted by the time we get to chapter 18. And Jehoshaphat is now thinking, my power, the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth and this security. And that arrogant shift in confidence inevitably leads to misplaced reliance. Who needs prayer and dependence on the Lord of the universe when you have the brains of Phil Friesen? Or the leadership gifting of Glenn Page? Or the financial wizardry of whoever? Who needs the Lord? Don't we sometimes, don't I sometimes think that, yeah, I, I can figure this, if I just try hard, I can figure this out and fix it. Brothers and sisters, where has the Lord given you a measure of success? Is it in your parenting, in your marriage, your business and finances and investments, sports, relationships? Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for that success. Now, check your heart. Has your confidence and reliance on him lessened with increased success? You feel you've got 30 grand in your parenting bank and not just $32 or your wisdom bank or your investment smarts, or your art of the deal bank, or maybe your avoiding the consequences bank. I I can figure this out. I can thwart what God might want to do. Success can be very precarious because it brings with it the danger of pride and misplaced reliance. Point two. Developing that just a little bit bit, is that this susceptibility to misplaced confidence increases as we grow older. It increases as we grow older. There's something that happens when we've experienced success stretched out over a long period of time. Increased success makes us increasingly susceptible to misplaced reliance and confidence. In 2 Chronicles, there are at least five godly kings who made disastrous choices late in life. Some of them, boy, very, very, very bad choices. King Asa, chapter 16. Jehoshaphat here in chapter 18. Next, King Joash, chapter 24, Uzziah in chapter 26, and King Hezekiah in chapter 32. Brothers and sisters, these are not third-rate kings. These were wise, godly kings. God blessed the kingdom of Judah through them. But something happened, and the root of their misplaced confidence late in their life, all five of them late in life, was, was pride. A shift from God confidence earlier in their careers to self confidence later in their careers. And after years of walking with the Lord, the tentacles of pride 
had wrapped around their hearts and overtook them. So older guys, we've got to be on guard. We've got to be seriously on guard against this insidious enemy who is never out of reach. And young folks, you too, cultivate humility now. Cultivate the fear of the Lord in your hearts now, realizing any success that you may have experienced that you have is ultimately a gift from the Lord. It's not of your own doing. Because this susceptibility to misplaced confidence increases as we get older. So what is our defense? Point number three. Our defense is the centrality of the word and add prayer in there. The centrality of the word and prayer in our daily lives. CNN and Fox News will not remind you that ultimately all your successes are due to God's grace and providence in your life. As we close out this edition of NBC Nightly News, please remember, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you in due time. Wouldn't that be a great way to end the news at night? I don't expect it to happen. The Kennesaw Business Association and the Cherokee Chamber will not warn you about the dangers of self-confidence and misplaced reliance. In fact, they'll probably fan it into flame of telling us how great we are because we accomplished this and -and so-and-so did that. And we can start believing our own press reports. So how do we battle this? What is an effective defense against this self-confidence and misplaced reliance? The key, it is the Word of God. And one of the themes in Chronicles is the recovery and centrality of God's word. They would lose God's word. In fact, one place they were cleaning out the temple and found the book of the law. They lost it for a generation. And for us too, God's word is the hope to battle pride, self-confidence. So what weight, what place does God's word play in your life, dear brother, dear sister? And that question isn't meant to stir up guilt or condemnation. It's an invitation to feast on the Lord's goodness, to know Him in a deeper, more personal way, to feed our souls and our thirsting soul with the water of God's Word. So here's one way to assess our hearts in regard to God's Word and where our trust is. Is regular time in the Word, is it a non-negotiable for you? Like getting up and going to work. Like eating, like working out, if you're someone who works out regularly, or maybe like that TV show or that sports event that you never miss. Nope, it's on the calendar. Is it a non-negotiable for you, or is it, well, you know, if I have extra time, maybe I'll get to it. That's an indication of where our hearts is, isn't it? Where does God's word, what weight, what place does it have in our daily, weekly calendar? Prayer is very similar. Is prayer our last resort? When all else fails, well, maybe we should pray. Carol's dad was on the church board uh, early in their marriage in Atlanta, and they were having a meeting discussing some difficult um, issues related to a building program. Imagine that. And uh, as they were talking about these things, it was some really difficult decision. Carol's dad said, Men, why don't, why don't we just stop and pray? 
And one one of the other men turned to him and said, John, this is a business meeting. When I was working at Superior Plumbing and what frequently have conversations with my boss, Tom, who, who, is, who is a believer, committed believer, and talking about difficult things in the company, and often I would just think, Phil, you need to stop and pray. You need to stop and pray. And Tom was always welcome to that. He would never, he, he was always welcome to that. But how difficult it is to do that. Do you find that the truth? No, we can figure this out if we just talk this through. So easy for our tendency to not go the God of all wisdom and I'm not stopping to ask him for help? What's up with that? So encouraging after church almost every Sunday to look around and see there are a few little spots, people huddled together, praying for one another. Asking God for help in the midst of our needs. So encourage. Let's keep cultivating that, brothers and sisters. Let's learn to do that at home with our wives, with our kids. Let's just stop and pray, kids. We don't, we don't know what to do. Let's ask God for help. So consistent time in the word and prayer are two of the best defenses against misplaced confidence. And then our second defense is the gospel. And Chris, if you and the guys will, you and the band will come back up, please. Our second defense against misplaced confidence is the gospel. Last week in our youth meeting, Brandon gave a message from 2 Corinthians 4. How Satan has blinded the minds of every unbeliever so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We can hear the gospel a hundred times. And never see it, never get it, never embrace it, never believe it. And you and I can't do anything. We can't do anything to remove that blindness from our hearts or from, from anybody else's heart. The only thing that changes that and the only thing that has changed that in the lives of us who are trusting in Christ is that Almighty God has done a second work of creation in our hearts And 2 Corinthians 4 says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, back in Genesis chapter 1, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And when he did that, brothers and sisters, we were born again and we put our faith in Christ. We saw it. We put our faith in Christ. And I was thinking last Sunday as I was sitting there listening in our youth meeting, it's a miracle of grace that I am trusting in Christ today. Total miracle. There is no reason in me that God should not have sent me to hell years ago. Arrogant young man, self-righteous, thinking I'm better than everybody else. Thinking God was lucky. God should feel good to have me on his team. Can you believe that? God should have. Go ahead, Phil. You think you're big stuff? Keep at it. Why in the world would he be so gracious to me? But he is gracious, isn't he? Patient with us. We're seeing that in the story of Jonah. How, how patient and kind God is with Jonah. He's patient and kind with Jehoshaphat. He's patient and kind with you and me. And we, when we realize 
and remind ourselves that we have not received the judgment that we actually deserve, but instead we've received the glory and forgiveness and the promise of eternal life that none of us deserve in one iota. Brothers, that's a great way to combat those tentacles of self-reliance because the only thing that changed that was a miracle of God's grace. You didn't do that. I didn't do that. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? So if there's an area of your life that the Lord is putting his finger on and saying, you're trusting your $32 worth of measly human resources and not trusting my omnipotent power and love and grace, that path of misplaced trust is not going to end well. If he's saying that to you, then he is inviting you to repent of your misplaced trust. Turn back in faith to him and to see how he will guide you and meet all your needs out of his limitless supply of grace and mercy. Listen to him as he's speaking to you and let's stand and sing as we close.
now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God and Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. May the Lord bless you as you go on with the rest of your day.